Hi, I'm Mark Lynch with the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS podcast, our series of conversations with leading scholars in the field. Uh, with me today is Wendy Perlman of Northwestern University. Uh, Wendy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. So, Wendy, you've been doing uh, some really important and fascinating research uh, on Syria and the origins of the uprising, mm -hmm. and you've done a really remarkable number of, of interviews in constructing this oral history of the uprising. Tell us a little bit about what you've been doing and how you're carrying out this research and uh, kind of what you think you're learning about Syria. Well, thanks so much. So since 2012, I've been carrying out open-ended interviews with displaced Syrians. I began, um, like many people, watching the Syrian uprising from afar, and I was just fascinated um, really by the individual level experience of what this must have been like for Syrians who went out into the streets, what drove them to do so, what drove them to stay, how people were experiencing protest, how they were experiencing violence, how people ultimately fled the country as refugees, and decided that there was no better way for me to understand that sort of lived experience, the personal experience of all of these very dramatic political phases, there was no better way to access that than to get to individuals themselves and ask them to tell me their stories. So I began in 2012 with a trip to Jordan, where I basically interviewed every Syrian refugee I could find in Jordan. I began with a few contacts. Those contacts snowballed into many more contacts. And whomever I could meet, I would ask them just to tell me about their experience um, if they went out to protest, if they did not, what it was like, um, and really just to narrate what the uprising had been like for them. Uh, that was the summer of 2012, and because the revolt was still relatively new compared to where we are now, my focus was on the beginning of protest and really how people came to uh, participate in high-risk dissent. So I began focused on, on how people came to protest if they did, and to narrate in the sort of thickest possible way the beginning phases of protest, how demonstrations began in their communities, how they evolved, and, and that sort of thing. And as you know, one of my interests in the beginning was this, this expression, breaking the barrier of fear. Given the amount of fear, the heavy silence and intimidation of the Assad regime before 2011, how people came to break through fear, to overcome fear, in order to go out and, uh, in some cases, risk their lives to participate. In 2013, I went back to Jordan to gather more interviews and then also moved on to Turkey, um, realizing that uh, most of the Syrians displaced to Jordan were coming from Dara or southern Syria, and I was getting a very Dara story, and that wasn't all of Syria, and I needed to go to other countries that were absorbing refugees in order to access Syrians um, from other areas. So I went on to Turkey. But I remember when I went back to Jordan for that second time, the second summer, 2013, and I spoke with one Syrian man there who'd been quite helpful with me, um, connecting me to other interviewees. And he said, you know, Wendy, why are you here? Why did you come a second summer? And I said, oh, I'm still interested in this question of how people broke through the barrier of fear. And he just sort of sighed and shook his head. And he was like, you can't keep asking people that question how did you break through the barrier of fear? Or what about the beginning of the uprising? He said, it's 2013, almost as if the start of the uprising had become ancient history. And he said, ask people about despair. Ask them about war. Ask them about disillusionment. And that was sort of the light bulb for me that although I had begun this project really interested in the start of the uprising, Syria was going on and on, mm -hmm. and the uprising was the very beginnings, although many people still cherished it as a historic moment in their country and a historic moment in their own lives and their relationship to politics, I had to also gather information and ask people about what happened to their lives 
after that, that moment. And at that point, my interview is still open-ended, still trying to gather personal narratives and have people just narrate their experiences came not only about the very start of the uprisings, but really about people's experiences as protest evolved, as protest became sustained, as protest became militarized, their experience either taking up arms or their experience of being victims and the absorbers of violence from the regime or other parties, and then eventually how they fled. So what it's continued then, the 2012 in Jordan, 2013 in both Jordan and Turkey, and then I returned to Turkey in 2015, in 2016, spent a couple weeks in Lebanon in 2016, and Currently, I'm beginning what will be three months based in Europe, also gathering the stories of Syrians in Denmark, Sweden, and mostly in Germany. It has become a much broader oral history of the Syrian experience, of people's lives and how they, relate, they related to politics before 2011, and what was the lived experience for citizens under an authoritarian regime, their experience of participating in protest or experiencing dissent, um, in that moment of 2011 with the start of nonviolent protests, and then how they've experienced every other phase of the conflict as it's unfolded. Repression, war, and now ultimately exile and how they see the future. Now, what's really interesting about uh, some of your earlier writings on mm -hmm. this, um, based on some of those earlier interviews, was your experience of talking to people spread out all over different camps, different communities, mm -hmm. and hearing very similar narratives. I think you talked about this as like a collective narrative. Yes. And it raises very interesting questions about uh -huh. how is it that people end up telling these stories? Was this actually their experience, mm -hmm. or is it something which they kind of pieced together as they talked to other people listen to the mm -hmm. television and all these things. Mm -hmm. How do you think about that when you're hearing these stories and you hear the same anecdote being told by different people? Mm -hmm. you know, as, a, as, a, as a social scientist, how do you respond when you're hearing those things? What do mm -hmm. you do with that kind of information? Well, it's, it's a great question. I do see these individual narratives coalescing into a collective narrative, but it is a question of, is there a real collective narrative that people that are then expressing as individual narratives or the individual narratives mm -hmm. add up to something? Which way does the arrow go? But what I find to be interesting is, for the most part, it's not actually that people are telling the same anecdote. They're telling very different anecdotes of their own personal experiences. When I was six years old and I had to go to school and salute you know, Hafez al-Assad and do re recite this saying. And then someone else is talking about when they were a kid and something. People might say different, different anecdotes about their childhood growing up under Assad Syria. They'll tell different stories about when I personally went to my first demonstration and what it felt like. And they'll tell different stories about what it was like to live under shelling. People are very much telling, this happened to me, I did this, this in eighth grade, this when I got married, mm -hmm. this when my brother was kidnapped, and so forth. But I see very similar themes coming out in those anecdotes. So that's something that that I see as being, it's, there are similar, there's, there are some important general motifs and issues that are, I find to be very significant yeah. in constructing the Syrian experience. This is about, around um, and by rebellion supporters. So the, that's a, an important yeah, yeah. caveat that the um, overwhelming majority of people I speak to are anti-regime 
pro-uprising. Um, their opinions of the uprising might have changed over time, but in the beginning they were very much um, critics of the regime that wanted to change it. They tell myriad different anecdotes about their personal experiences, but there are some major themes that connect them all. Well, so I've, I've had the experience, as I'm sure you have as well, where I might interview somebody in 2011, and they tell me one story, and you know, may, they may say, you know, oh, we had no idea what was going to happen, and it was totally spontaneous. And and then you interview the same person two years later, and they tell you a very different story about mm -hmm. how it was organized and and all these things. And not that they're they're not lying. It's just that they've actually, you know, their memories have evolved, and perhaps in mm -hmm. response to these collective narratives. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had this experience where mm -hmm. you've re-interviewed people and gotten different accounts? Maybe they mm -hmm. said, I was really scared, but then the next time they said, I was never scared. I knew the people were with me, like, like mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I haven't had that opportunity to talk to the same person, have them narrate the same events, um, although I could try to. I mean, even in the next few weeks, I will be meeting in Germany and in Sweden people who I met when they were refugees in Turkey three years mm -hmm. ago who've now become refugees in Europe, and I'm going to have the chance to meet them again, and maybe I will ask them the same question. I remember very well them narrating for me three years ago. Um, in addition to their telling me new things that they've, they've discovered. What I found to be most um, prominent over time is, uh, or the, the most interesting and prominent change over time, um, because I haven't been able to see those differences in people telling factually distinct Right. Um, uh, narratives or testimonials, what is tangibly different, what has changed over time, is the sort of effective or emotional tone of their relationship to Syria and, and the uprising, yeah. is that people might still tell the same story. I was scared or I wasn't scared. I went out or I didn't go out. This happened to me or this didn't happen to me. But in 2012, and to some degree in 2013, there was a more tangible sense of optimism. When I first met Syrians in Jordan in 2012, many people had the sense that their bags were packed, they were waiting any day for Assad to fall, and they were going to go back home. By 2013, you began to see well, began to see or, or really saw crystallize a much greater sense of, of disillusionment. Um, I, in 2013, I heard people beginning to say things like, well, maybe I'll move on to Europe. And at that point, moving on to Europe was almost a sense of giving up on Syria, giving up on the revolt, getting on with life, of young activists who, um, these guys in their mid-20s who had just dedicated two, three years of their life, had been in prison, had put everything on their personal lives on hold to be 24 hours a day full-time living revolution were beginning to say to themselves, you know, I, I stopped my university studies a few credits short of graduation. Maybe I'd like to, to finish studies again. Or, you know, maybe I'd like to get married and have kids. Isn't that my, my right too? So beginning to, people beginning to ask, especially among activists, um, you know, do I have the right or the, uh, the ability to move on with my personal life? By now, many of those people are now back in school, or they're married and have little babies. So they've 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 moved on, and they're moving on with life. They're changing sense of of do I have a, a right to, or what am I, what is my commitment to the uprising? The sense of can the uprising still succeed? Is it even still an uprising? I've talked to people who think, oh, <laughs> revolution, is that still right. a use that people, that's even applicable? A sense of, is Syria still worth fighting for? Or some, some people like, Surya Rahat, I mean, Syria's gone, forget about it. So um, the sense of, of their own optimism or pessimism and what that means for themselves personally in terms of what is the right or, or uh, obligatory thing to do as a Syrian who cares about this 
Um, that has that has dramatically changed with time. Let me ask you one last question. Um, you know, it's been a major theme of our, our, our PullMaps conferences the last few years, mm -hmm. and a theme that you've been central to pushing forward. Mm -hmm. These questions of of research ethics mm -hmm. and what and and what is involved ethically, uh, but also mm -hmm. even just like in practice with going and interviewing and asking for narratives from people who've gone and experienced enormous trauma, who have been dispossessed, have, have witnessed horrible things. Now, how have you grappled with that as a researcher, the fact that you're interviewing and extracting information from these highly vulnerable and highly traumatized individuals? Mm -hmm. Wow, it's, it's, it's a terrific question. Well, on, on the one hand, many of the people I've interviewed have become in some ways, lifelong contacts and friends. They're, they're part of my life and I'm a part of, of their lives, which is something that's make it mess, muddly right. in terms of seeing them as data points, but it's... Um, it's not exploitative. It's, it's, no, no, no. It's, it's now we're lifelong friends. As I was saying, they're, they're the guys who I met three years ago in Turkey that I'm very excited now to get on a train to you know, some village in, in, mm -hmm. in, 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 in such and such provincial part of Germany to see because these are people I care about and their stories have changed me and and hopefully my relationship to them has been positive in their life too. So there's also these, you also sort of look for small ways to give back. So for example, I met a um, computer science professor when I was in Turkey, a computer, um, a computer science professor from, from Syria who was just sort of languishing there in the Turkish border and didn't know what to do. And I said, have you ever heard of the Scholars at Risk program? And was helpful in trying to mm -hmm. introducing him to that. And he's now relocated as a, as a professor in, in Europe. And um, there's you know another uh, Syrian contact of mine. I'm helping him with an application now for yeah. college. So in the ways you can offer some sort of, of, of service, given the kinds of skills that we have, which is English language, access to universities, understanding of how application systems work, or perhaps awareness of certain resources and opportunities, as much as possible to communicate those those back or connect people in any sort of helpful way. So finding some way to give to give back. You're, I feel like I'm not able to give back on an individual basis to every single person, but if I'm giving back to my to the utmost of my capacity mm -hmm. to um, to this community as as a whole, um, as well as just showing a sort of human caring of, of interest in people's lives and where they go if someone gets married or someone has a baby yeah. and, um, what, and so what forth. What the interview moment yeah. itself, though? Like yeah. how do you, you're sitting there in a room with right. a woman who has been raped or who've watched her uh -huh. children be killed. And you know, we're political scientists. We're not right. trained to deal with that kind of right. emotional trauma. And yet, yeah. I, my sense is that you're highly empathetic and you're very good at <laughs> those moments, but most of us aren't. Well, I think there are two levels. One is, is being good in that moment and, and try to, fight, to provide the, the empathy to the interviewee that makes that person feel comfortable, that makes that person even feel comforted to have that person's expressing of their own story be um, something that could be somehow cathartic or therapeutic or at the very least not harmful for them. Um, the other question is then after the fact, what we do for ourselves afterwards, there are times I came back after my three months of, of interviewing in 2013, and I myself was an emotional wreck. And that's when I realized I wasn't necessarily trained to absorb people's trauma and um, became aware of this term secondary post-traumatic stress or compassion um, mm -hmm. fatigue or so forth and realized I had been absorbing a lot of the trauma myself and didn't quite have the training to know how to distance myself from it. I was just absorbing it again and again. Um, but certainly the ethical um, obligation takes takes many forms. Um, human empathy is is a great a great bottom line and also 
for sure the awareness, I think the sort of sensitivity of, of sensing if somebody wants to talk or doesn't, is beyond there's the issue of we're trained with the IRB of you have to get consent. But I think there's an added level. There are times when people have consented to interview with, with me, but I could sense they really didn't want to. That they, somebody else had asked them, they felt like they had to do it as some sort of an obligation. And, um, and I think that's also wise as an interviewer to pull back at that point. Technically, that person has consented to an interview de jour. De facto, that person is being put in an uncomfortable position and doesn't really want to talk. At that point, I think you say, thank you very much, and that's been enough, and you get out to not cause any person uh, uh, harm. All right. Well, well, well thanks, Wayne. I mean, these are issues that are becoming increasingly important for a whole yeah. generation uh, of young scholars who are working with these communities. I think there's a long way to go uh, in, in the field. Uh, thanks for joining the program, and thanks for talking about your research. This has been Wendy Perlman, uh, Northwestern University. Uh, thanks for being on the program.